0: Welcome to the VU Church Podcast. Today, guest speaker, Brooke Lidgertwood, shares in part four of our collection of talks, seven revelations of Jesus for his church. In this message, Cosmic Jesus, we study the church in Thyatira and learn that Jesus calls us, like the people in Thyatira, out of compromise. Despite their faith and service, they compromise their beliefs for the sake of false teachings. Jesus' instruction reminds us that we're called to live confidently in Him without compromising our faith. For more resources on Revelation, check out vuchurchcom seven. Now let's lean into the message together.
1: Um, I have loved this series so far. Um, I have watched every single message and it has been phenomenal. Obviously, you get to sit under a master communicator every week. I am not that, uh, but I will bring what I bring. I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm ruining all of the things. Um, I thought I'd try the headset because I I feel a little like Janet Jackson when I get that on, but maybe, maybe it's not to me, so we'll try this one. Um, uh, so seven, seven letters to seven churches. Um, when Pastor Rich and Dontry invited me to come and be with you this morning, um, and said that that this would be in the midst of this series, um, I was terrified and excited. Uh, but but I personally have been living in the book of Revelation for the past couple of years, uh, so much so that um, that earlier this year, uh, I released an album called Seven. Um, I uh, in the past few years of the turmoil of the world and the church, you know, it might be new to our generation, uh, but it's not new to the generations. (laughs) The church has been through times before, it will go through times again. And this is our time in our generation to know what is it that Jesus says to us as the church of Jesus on the earth today? How do we respond? How are we disciples in a difficult world? And the book of Revelation is a great gift to us in that. Um, So let's pray and then get into it. Amen. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the precious gift of Your Son, Jesus. We thank You, Lord, that He is well able to answer our every question, that He is not deterred by our doubts. He is not discouraged by our questions by our longings, by our yearnings, but he, he and you invite us to come and bring them all and you have an answer for us in who you are and in your word. As we open your word together this morning, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate it to us, open your word to us that we may see wonderful things in your Lord. And most of all, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us in a new way? Would we see you in a way that we haven't seen you before? And would you be glorified in this church in your church now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Um, so the actor William Shatner uh, acted in a, a, a kind of sci-fi fantasy TV series called Star Trek. Any Trekkies out there? I personally, yeah, we got, we got one. That's so good. Um, but last year, uh, so, so William Shatner spent most of his career career playing uh, a character called James T. Kirk in Star Trek, where they traversed the galaxies, um, fighting intergalactic enemies. Um, But in real life, on October 13th, last year, 2021, at 90 years old, William Shatner became the oldest person to go to space. He boarded Blue Origin's New Shepard rocket, and for 10 minutes, he went to space for real. He wrote about his experience uh, in his memoir that I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read this excerpt and this is what it says. This is how he describes what happened when he was in those 10 minutes in space. He writes, we got out of our harnesses and began to float around. The other folks went straight into somersaults and enjoying all the effects of weightlessness. I wanted no part in that. I wanted, needed to get to the window as quickly as possible to see what was out there. I looked down and I could see the hole that our spaceship had punched in the thin blue-tinged layer of oxygen around Earth. I continued my self-guided tour and turned my head to face the other direction to stare into space. I love the mystery of the universe, he writes. I love all the questions that have come to us over thousands of years of exploration and hypotheses. Stars exploding years ago, their light traveling to us years later black holes absorbing energy, satellites showing us entire galaxies in areas thought to be devoid of matter entirely. All of that has thrilled me for years. But when I looked in the opposite direction, into space, there was no mystery, no majestic awe to behold. All I saw was death. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to church. Um, (laughs) He writes, everything I had thought was wrong, everything I expected to see was wrong. It was among the strongest feelings of grief I have ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of earth below filled me with an overwhelming sadness. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. Wow. So there's that. Um <laughs> So that was last year in in 2021, Uh, but just last month actually, on September 26th this year, NASA completed a mission called DART, which stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test. Did anyone hear about this? You could watch it live on YouTube, it was crazy. But basically what happened is NASA, uh, for the first time, there was a group of technicians in a NASA room hoping that an aircraft would be smashed to pieces. So what they did was they basically took this spacecraft and they flew it right into space where there was a smaller asteroid orbiting a bigger asteroid. And their mission was to fly this spacecraft as hard and fast as they could into one of these asteroids to see what would happen. The collision collision happened and it successfully altered and shortened the orbit of this smaller asteroid called Dimorphus, sorry. Didymus is the big one. Uh, dimorphous, by 32 minutes. Laurie Glaze, who's the director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA, said for the first time ever, humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body. Why do I share these things with you? Because what William Shatner, when he went to space for those 10 minutes, after having all of these ideas about what space was for his whole career, experienced <laughs> uh, this picture of what I would call cosmic angst that there is a deep desire in the human soul uh, to know that there is something more, and when he went to the place where all of this was supposed to happen and there was nothing, he encountered grief what happened last month when we apparently it was the equivalent when we when we hurdled that spacecraft I say we like I was <laughs> like I was involved I wasn't um, thank you NASA. Um, Uh, But what happened was they basically hurled the spacecraft. It was the equivalent of slamming a golf cart into the Great Pyramid. And it was the first time in history that humanity has affected anything in the planetary system. Why is that relevant? Because we also want to feel like there's gonna be some cosmic relief to this cosmic angst, right? Psalm 19 kind of gives us a picture of this. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. The seen realities of the universe, black holes and galaxies and asteroids, and stars, and waterfalls, and creeks, and clouds. I'm just listing things now. Um, uh, They are glimpses and echoes of a reality just beyond our sight, the thin veil that separates the realm of eternity from this one that we inhabit. And God has given us, as humans, these five senses by which we experience the seen and known Universe, We have sight, smell, touch, uh, all of these things. God didn't have to make food taste good. Uh, Why would he do that apart from to give us a good gift, to give us a glimpse that there is something good? Uh, Why is a touch comforting? Uh, Biologically, there's no reason that that's necessary, but why would he give us that other than to give us glimpses and breadcrumbs that there is a good God, that there is a creator behind these senses? Amen. So John, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, uh, at 96 AD, I love that Pastor Rich has recapped this, every message, I'm gonna do it again really briefly, but in 96 AD, John finds himself on an island called Patmos. At this time, he's one of the last, if not the last living apostle. Um, The others who knew what it was to walk with Jesus in his human form uh, are long dead. So John finds himself on Patmos. He has been imprisoned and exiled there because of his allegiance to Jesus, because he refuses Caesar worship, because he won't do it. So he's sent to to Patmos and he's exiled. At the same time, at this point, the church is decades old. The church has spread. There are communities and congregations uh, all over this area, over this region of the world. And there are good things happening. There are people coming to faith, there are people finding and discovering Jesus and coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as we know, at the same time as there is this divinity and this grace of God at work in the church of Jesus, there's humanity and there's sin. And John, the pastor, his pastor heart, aches to be with these congregations to help remind them, point them to the words of the epistles, to the teachings and the life of Jesus, but he can't. He's far away, so what can he do? What can any pastor do? What can we do when things are out of our control and when we are in deep distress about the state of the world or the condition of the church? He prays and he worships. And as he prays and as he worships, a veil is peeled back and we are given the revelation. The book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a book given to us to help us be disciples in a difficult world. John had known Jesus. He had walked with Him. He had, he had been one who reclined with Him at the Last Supper. He had had His feet washed by this Jesus. He had eaten meals with Jesus. He had seen as Jesus had spit dirt and made mud and pasted it on people's faces. As He fed 5,000, as He, as he calmed storms and boats, He had walked with this human Jesus. But he needed something more in this moment as he sat in his mourning and his distress for the churches and as he prayed and as as he worshiped, he needed to know and remember, not just the Jesus that he walked with in his human form, but he needed to see Jesus as he was now, as he is now. And I don't know about you, (laughs) but, but life as a human is very interesting. And I can only say in 2022, and in the years to come, that the Lord is well able to grace us for the season that we're in. That for whatever reason, there's this beautiful scripture in Acts um, when, when Paul is giving this speech at the Areopagus and he talks about um, how God sets for people their times and boundaries, where they would live and exist. Sometimes, I don't know about you, I feel overwhelmed at the times we're living in. I feel that in myself, I have an inadequate supply to meet the need of the world around me. I have... Inadequate wisdom to know how to navigate these times in the church. But Jesus has decided that you and me and everyone in the Everglades that this time in history is the time that we should be born the Scripture says that we might reach out for Him. In other words, that's also a great hope for salvation, a great hope for redemption on the planet, because it means everyone else that's here with us, all of my family who don't know the Lord yet, the Lord also decided that this was the time that they should live, that they would be most likely to reach out for Jesus. He chose us to be here. And whether we feel like we can do it or not, the great news is that it's not us. It's Jesus, Jesus who washed feet, Jesus who spat and made mud and put it on people's eyes, but Jesus who stands in the middle of the churches right now. Jesus who stands and reigns right now. We have a cosmic angst. We have a cosmic relief, but it's not in flying spacecraft into asteroids. It's in seeing King Jesus as He is now. Amen. Daryl Johnson uh, wrote a book called Discipleship on the Edge. It's an an expository journey through Revelation. Um, I've been living in it for a couple of years now, but he says this thing that I think helps us. The book of Revelation has a twofold purpose. Number one, to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. Number two, to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. There is more than we see, and Revelation exists to help us connect with that. So we are up to number four in the series, letter four of the series, uh, we have heard lost love, the church in Ephesus. They worked hard, I'm gonna recap quickly, they worked hard, they endured hardships, and they hadn't compromised their beliefs, and they'd correctly discerned false teaching and call it out, but they had forsaken their first love. So Jesus, I love how um, Pastor Rich said, he he commends them, he complains, and then he commands. So this is the pattern we see in the letter. So that was Ephesus, Smyrna. They're commended for their faithfulness and they were encouraged not to fear in their imminent suffering. And then Pergamum last week, uh, they stayed true to Jesus. They did not renounce him in a place of extreme kind of demonic activity. Um, they stood their ground for the gospel, but the complaint was that they had believed heresy. And now we come to our text for this week, part two, part, uh, part four, Thyatira. Thyatira. Um, It is generally agreed upon uh, among scholars that Thyatira is not only the longest letter to the churches, but also the most difficult to interpret. (laughs) It's also got all the Jezebel stuff in it, so yay. Um, Let's go there together. If you have your Bibles, did anyone have their Bibles in church? Yeah, paper. Some people have it on their phones, that's okay. Otherwise, it's gonna be on the screens, but why don't we read through it together? To the church in Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. It's good. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to, those, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. We're almost there. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Verse 28, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Some strong words here. <laughs> um, The first reference to Thyatira in scripture is actually in in Acts 16, Paul finds himself down by a river and he meets, there's a group of women down by the river, he meets one of them, her name is Lydia, and it says that she's a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira. The gospel is shared with this group and Lydia and her whole household are saved. And she asks that Paul and and his companions to come back with her and stay with her at her house. So we can guess from that, that perhaps this was the beginning of the church in Thyatira. It was back in Acts 16. A woman called Lydia by a river meets Paul. hears the gospel responds. The gospel goes back to Thyatira and this church begins. Many, many decades later, we have this this letter written to the church in Thyatira. What's interesting is that uh, There's not much archeological evidence left of Thyatira. We don't know much about it. We know a lot about some of the other cities mentioned in the letters to the churches. We know that Ephesus was a very influential church. We know that Smyrna was beautiful. We know these other things about these other cities. Thyatira we know wasn't an influential church, uh, which I think we can take actually encouragement from. It means that Jesus is not looking uh, just for uh, what the world deems as significant. but he is actually uh, where, he is He is moving and watching uh, among people uh, of no influence, so to speak. Um, everything is significant to Jesus. Everyone is significant to Jesus. So Jesus deems Thyatira significant enough to his heart to write this letter. Thyatira was the center of uh, what they called trade guilds, which um I was trying to figure out a modern-day equivalent, kind of like unions. But basically, uh, Thyatira was a, um, a, a working-class town. So uh, in Thyatira, you had people who, who worked in trades. You had um, leather workers, bronze smiths. Um, iron workers, um, it was a big center of cloth dyeing and garments. So you had a lot of people who were working in these trades. But the thing about working in the trades is that to kind of do business in the town or outside of the town, you had to belong to a trade guild. So what that means is that all of the people who worked in the cloth dyeing business would belong to this trade guild. So they would get together, they would discuss business. But here was the tricky thing for a believer in Thyatira, is that the trade guilds met in pagan temples. And they would begin their meetings, their business meetings, basically by sacrificing food to idols and then sitting around the table and eating of it. And then in some of these temples as well, where these trade guild meetings were happening, then the temple, the shrine prostitutes would come out and all stuff would get really nasty. Um, And so obviously for the believer, this is a problem. (laughs) Um, and so, so what we have in Thyatira is this, this congregation, this community of people who are working, how to, figuring out how to provide for their family, but a reality of what it means for them to work and hustle and provide is that they are, uh, they are expected to engage in this pagan worship. So this is clearly a problem. Uh, Paul had spoken very clearly in 1 Corinthians with guidelines around these things. So it wasn't as though the church was, not w- was without instruction. There were really clear instructions and guidelines for the believers for decades actually as to how to navigate this stuff. And it was basically, don't navigate it, stay away from it. But what happened and why Jesus has such strong words for the church in Thyatira is that there was somebody who, who Jesus in the letter calls Jezebel. We think that's probably not her real name or his real name. But Jezebel was basically spreading a teaching in the church saying almost like kind of an enlightened and sophisticated version of the truth, which said, actually, it's okay to do this. You can worship Jesus and like do the pagan stuff, but it's fine. So Jesus very strongly says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And by her teaching, she is misleading my servants. She's misleading my church into things that are damaging to their soul, damaging to their witness, and fatal to their freedom, which we'll go into a little bit more. So this was a problem. Fun fact, I just saw this in my notes. Um, There's a current archbishop, Thyatira still exists, and there is a current archbishop. His name is Nikitas Lulius, and he's from Tampa. (laughs) So, didn't expect to find that in, in my preparation. Uh, uh, so god bless you uh Tampa. um uh, but anyway so 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 but let's go back before before jesus gets into those words of warning as he does in the other letters he gives an encouragement he says i know your deeds your love and your faith your service and perseverance that you're now doing more than you did at first um i i love that jesus often gives what i what I call the feedback sandwich, um, which is that he, he and, and he would do that with us as well. You know, it's really hard to accept discipline from the Lord if you don't know that he loves you. Comes across as really, as really different if you don't know he loves you. So the first thing would be to say uh, that you're seen by Jesus and that you're known by Jesus and that you're loved by Jesus. Um, Being loved puts discipline in a whole new light. If you have discipline without love, it can come across as cruelty. But how many of you know, if you have love without discipline, uh, things go wrong pretty quickly. Because he loves us, he must tell us what's killing us. He must correct us. He must lead us into life. So there's that beautiful assurance of being known. Jesus says, I know I know your faith, I know your deeds, and that you're doing more than you did at first. And another translation says you're doing, the work says you're doing a greater, of greater quality. They're of greater quality. You're doing, um, not only are you doing more, but you're doing better. What you're doing is pleasing to me. Well done. So he begins with this, well done. It's so, uh, he gives that commendation, um, but then he has to come onto this complaint. So the history of kind of that Jezebel reference, um, Uh, is that Jezebel was actually uh, a queen in the Old Testament. She comes on the scene in 1 Kings 16 and she marries King Ahab, but Jezebel uh, was a Baal worshiper. There was an idol called Baal who Jezebel worshiped. So she marries Ahab, just giving you a little bit of history, uh, she, she marries King Ahab and then very quickly turns King Ahab's heart to Baal worship and then begins using her influential position in government to begin to spread uh, Baal worship kind of all over the kingdom of Israel. She, uh, she has 850 prophets on her payroll um, who are spreading kind of this, uh, this Baal worship, spreading this kind of mixture uh, message. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel when he kind of does battle uh, with the prophets of, of baal that 's in the context of of jezebel jezebel and, and Elijah was afraid of Jezebel he fled from her several times because she was a murderer she she If you were uh, she, the enemies of Jezebel were anybody who spoke the truth of the word of the Lord, which was the prophets. So that's why Elijah was so scared of her because he had a mark uh, on him because of Jezebel. He she was out for blood. So similarly, that's we we think that Jezebel was not the name of this person spreading this teaching, but the spirit was the same, right? The spirit was the same. The spirit was something that said, you can worship God. You can be God's people and be messing around with this other stuff. You can have your heart turned to idols, which we know is simply not true. It was this both and mentality. Um, later in the letter, uh, it talks a little bit about the uh, the Satan's so-called deep secrets. Um, when I was reading and studying this, I, I I, I thought about how uh, one of the things that this this Jezebel teaching seems to do is uh, is question truth. And it goes back to to Genesis, uh, to right back in Genesis 3, um, did God really say? And that's what we find happening in the church in Thyatira, that Jezebel is saying, did God really say? You can have both and. So not only was there this dangerous influence within the church, but it was a tolerated dangerous influence and, and, influence so Jesus had to do something about it Um, Jezebel's teaching essentially tried to dilute and distort orthodoxy which is right belief presenting this kind of new way of thinking that appeared to be more enlightened how many of you know there's always a new sophisticated uh, sophisticated approach um, but it's not new because there's nothing new under the sun Um, But orthodoxy, our right belief, is linked to orthopraxy, which is right practice. And, And Jesus cares so much about falsehood and about truth and falsehood because what we believe affects what we do. It affects everything about how we see God, how we see each other, how I interact with my husband in our marriage, what I believe about God. It uh, affects what I believe about the world, what I believe about myself, what I believe about the value or not of the people around me. It affects what I believe about who I worship and how I worship. And that affects our practice, how we're walking out this life in Christ. Um, so Jesus makes really clear that this is no bueno. And Daryl Johnson writes this, here Jesus, you like that? Um, <laughs> here Jesus presents himself Uh, as passionately intolerant why because he loves the truth he speaks the truth and he is the truth and because falsehood and deception of any kind enslaves people Jesus is passionately intolerant because he is passionately intolerant of people being enslaved Jesus is so intolerant of the false ideas influencing the church because any form of falsehood makes for bondage. And thankfully, Darrell Johnson writes, he will not tolerate people being in bondage because Christ came to set us free because he came to loose our chains. He cannot stand it. So there's this teaching that tolerates compromise and that teaching that tolerates compromise is being tolerated and it's leading people into compromise and into, these, into compromising their orthopraxy, into these wrong practices, this wrong outworking of gospel life. So here's the thing about compromise is compromise convinces you that it's okay to do the wrong thing if it's for the right reason. Jezebel's enemy was truth, and so she had to distort it to get these people to engage in these things. And then Jesus has to call it out and He does so uh, because He knows these three things. He had to call this out in Thyatira because He knew that this compromise, number one, caused damage to their soul, number two, caused damage to their witness, and number three, was fatal to their freedom. Jesus has to call out our sin. He has to call out my sin for the same reason, because He loves me, and because He knows when I engage in this stuff, when I compromise, which we all do in little ways, um, but he, he has to bring it to my attention because He knows that it damages my soul, that it damages my witness, and that it's fatal to my freedom. And He came to, for me to live fully free, so He has to call this stuff out. What we do with our body affects our soul. Jesus had to call this out, the sexual immorality and this idol, these idol feasts, because they weren't neutral acts. Um, uh, when First Current, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul taught about this, he said, we know that idols are nothing. We know that they're just objects, um, but other people are, don't know that. And there's actually spiritual realities behind these things. And what he does is he sets communion and idol feasts side by side to kind of help us understand the implications. Um, so he t- in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the power of the spiritual meal, right? We take communion, you take communion in this church. Um, why do we do that? Why have we done that for thousands of years? Firstly, because Jesus told him, told us to. If, when we do, we prophesy. It's actually a prophetic act as well. We take communion. We prophesy. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's a prophetic act of faith and declaring the reign of Jesus, which I get very excited about. That's excited. But also, when we when we take communion together, um, we're participating in something that's so much more than just the bread and the cup. First Corinthians ten sixteen. It says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, when we partake in this communion, we're partaking in a, this physical reality is actually uh, the physical representation of a spiritual reality. And Paul goes on to explain that for the believers in the early church, that parallel pagan meal also had spiritual consequences. You can't take the bread and the cup over here and be participating in the blood of Christ. And then over here, be going to these meetings and drinking this food, drinking this, uh, this cup and, and eating this food that's been sacrificed to idols. Because even though idols are nothing, there's actually spiritual realities behind this stuff. And here's where we need to be careful as well, because I think, you know, sometimes the enemy would have us spiritualize everything or spiritualize nothing. Um, when I was talking to uh, my friend Courtney about this yesterday, uh, she, she was talking about um, this quote which says, you know, Satan would either have us believe he's behind every rock or behind no rock. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. So the trick is, not the trick, that's a bad word to use. Um, I think where we wanna come to is a place where we are, uh, we are not operating out of religion and we're not operating out of fear. Um, but we're also being really mindful and spirit-led in what we engage in in the world, even if it seems harmless, because sometimes we can open the door to things that can be damaging to our soul. And that's also not to say that we then just separate ourselves and isolate ourselves. That's actually the opposite of what Jesus prayed. When Jesus prayed for us in John 17, He prayed this. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you, the Father, take them out of the world, us, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, Even as I am not of it, sanctify them by the truth. Jesus prayed for us. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. In other words, when we are here as disciples in a difficult world, we can't retreat and fear and isolate ourselves, but we are supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to be a city on a hill, but we're also supposed to be different. We are sanctified and sent. We're not isolated and self-protective, we are sanctified and sent. So how do we stop from getting caught up in, uh, in the chains of religion and fear? and follow the Holy Spirit and be active and be alive and be full of grace and mercy and truth and overflowing with a gospel life in the world, we've gotta get sanctified. And how do we do that? We First of all, the great news is we can't do it, but we invite it. We invite the Holy Spirit to keep working in our lives. We live in the Word of God. Jesus prayed for us. Sancti- sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. We're people who know the Word. You would have heard this example many times, but, uh, but people who study... Um, study currency to figure out uh, what is a counterfeit currency currency, and what is the the real thing. They don't study thousands and thousands of counterfeits. It's because they're so familiar with the nuances and the details of the real thing (laughs) that they can spot a counterfeit a mile off. And so it's the same for us as we live in the Bible, as we ask and I know not everybody's a reader, do it, get it in you however you need to, whether it's an audio book, whether it's, uh, whatever it is, but get this Word in you because this Word is living and active and it sanctifies us, it sanctifies me, it cleans me, it reminds me, it corrects me, it helps me sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. And then the love of the, he goes on to pray and talk about the love of the Father. In us. So much of being a disciple comes down to identity. Do we know whose we are? Do we know that we are loved by the Father? And do we receive His love? Do we operate in His love in the world? Jesus had to call this out as well, not only because doing these things was damaging to, uh, to the souls of these believers, it was damaging to their witness. Um, he talks about in 1 Corinthians 8 that not everybody knows um, what we know about the Lord and to the best of our ability that we have the responsibility to not cause others to stumble. Galatians 5, 13 says, use your freedom to serve one another in love. We don't want really to be wounding people with weak consciences, says the word in 1 Corinthians 8, 12 damages our soul, it's damaging to our witness and it's fatal to our freedom. Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly. We make choices in the world. And Jesus says our choices have consequences, our good choices and our bad choices. And when it comes to this letter to the, the Thyatirans, He offers a line of mercy. He says that He has given Jezebel, time to repent of her deeds, but she is unwilling. And what a beautiful gift that God has given us. Sometimes it feels strange, but we exist in time. And so He gives us time to make different choices. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I've made all the wrong choices. I've engaged with this stuff. You're here and you're breathing because Jesus has given you this time. And now the rest of your life, you have time to make different choices. He gives us time. Then He instructs us, He instructs the Thyatyrans with two things, to hold on to what we have until we come. In other words, to steward what we've been given, to continue in the way of Jesus, and to obey till the end. And this is the promise at the very end to to us who do that, to those who do that, verse 28, He says, I will also give that one the morning star. What does that mean? I am the bright and morning star. It's the last phrase in all of Scripture that Jesus uses to describe Himself at the very end of the book in Revelation 22. 22. So when Jesus in 2.28 is saying that He will give us the morning star, He's saying He will give us himself, himself. This cosmic relief, this cosmic angst, the morning star, what does it represent? I'm gonna read a quote from a Dutch economist called Bob Goodsward. Uh, This is what he writes. The morning star, and this is our promise, the morning star often appears between two and three at night when the darkness is complete and the faintest sign of morning is not yet visible. So small that it threatens to vanish. The star seems unable to vanquish the overpowering darkness. Yet, when you see the morning star, you know the night has been defeated for the morning star pulls the morning in behind it, just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. We know the Jesus of the Gospels. We know the teachings of the epistles. But Revelation offers us a gift, a unique gift. It helps us to see cosmic Jesus, reigning Jesus. At the start of the letter, Jesus describes Himself, the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Eyes like fire, fire that illuminates, that penetrates, that burns through all my facades and sees to the very core exposes what in me is fatal to me because He loves me. Eyes that blaze like fire and are anointed and able to burn away that in me and cleanse away that in me that would be to my destruction. Jesus sees and Jesus knows, but Jesus is well able to heal us, Church. And then finally, I wanna finish with this. Feet like burnished bronze, what does that mean? The Jewish believers who heard this letter would recognise the reference to Daniel. Right back in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Uh, and Daniel comes and both he tells him the dream and interprets it. And Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue. The statue was made of mixed materials. There was gold and silver and the feet were partly of baked clay and partly of iron. And then he sees in the dream this rock get cut out of a mountain and it comes and it smashes the statue and the statue uh, crumbles to pieces. A wind comes and blows away the statue and then this rock that smashed it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. The dream meant that every kingdom, every era of human history, every prime minister, every president, every government, every human kingdom will fall, will crumble, but the rock but the rock becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. The rock is Christ. His kingdom will outlast every kingdom. Daniel 2.44, in the times of those kings, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. Daniel 7 13 to 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus's kingdom stands when all other kingdoms fall. Jesus's church will be redeemed and he will get the bride that he paid for with the price of his blood. We don't have a Jesus who is unwilling or unvictorious. We have the Jesus who reigns throughout all time and eternity and Revelation gives us the gift of seeing not only Him as He was, but as He is now, reigning and glorious and victorious forever and ever. And so our choice is this, Daryl Johnson writes, the whole book of Revelation is written to bring us to the razor sharp point of decision. Who will be the Lord of my life and of the world? Whose will we be is the question. And to what kingdom will we pledge our allegiance? For what kingdom will we live in this world? We are disciples in a difficult world, but we have a King who stands, who reigns, who gives us time, who gives us grace and mercy to be a city on a hill, in Jesus' Name, Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, risen and reigning, victorious one, the Lamb who was slain, the only one worthy to receive all wealth and power and wisdom and honour forever and ever, You are worthy. We thank You for Your Word and we thank You for Your victory. We pray, Lord Jesus, teach us how to be disciples. Sanctify us by Your Word and help us to be sanctified and sent. A light on a hill, a city on a hill, the light of the world, salt and light, we pray. Be glorified in Your church, we
0: pray. In Jesus' Name, Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. At Vu. We believe we weren't meant to do life alone. We've been created with a unique purpose and designed to live in relationship with Jesus. If you've never surrendered your life to him, we want to create an opportunity for you to do so today. If you want to say yes to Jesus, would you pray this with me? Dear Jesus, come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. I trust you with my past, I ask that you guide me in my present, and I even place my future in your hands. I'm yours, Lord, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made the decision to follow Jesus today, we want to partner with you in the next steps of your faith journey. Go to vuchurchcom online. We love you.